0: Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic
1: mobile app.
2: You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 296 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have author, activist, and theater guy, John Pivovarnik. We talk to John about his love of Kurt Vonnegut, how he got into film and theater through some great teachers when he was a youngin'. We also talk about his new book called Stories from the Back of the Bus, published just this past July, and uh, features a little uh, discourse our conversation does about some hash brownies on a bus in L.A. We also talk a bit about Reagan and Trump, and, and oh, a lot of good stuff with Mr. Pivovarnik today. We have a wonderful essay by our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. This one's titled Bowling Night. We have an E.W.S.A. by yours truly titled Sore Throat and a poem called Grail. And as always, we have several great tunes imbued with the brilliance of the artists who crafted them to help guide this journey. Thank you so much for being with us. Let's get to it. Episode 296 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. Sore throat. My throat has been sore for over a week, my ears blocked and itchy, feeling much like the overcast days that seem to come and go endlessly. And I am here. That is something good to me, in my mind. A young woman I barely know has been a bit down lately as I became aware of through social media posts she recently shared. She is an artist and activist, and as I mentioned, relatively young, compared to me at least. She does good work in our community, organizing festivals and shows, bringing a lot of people together and helping to cultivate and release into the world human expression. And then there is the old man outside my window, incessantly blowing leaves and snow, who knows where and what for. The noise and pointlessness of his action, also the rude infraction on the natural peace that would otherwise be, baffles me. I wonder if he too is feeling down, has a sore throat, thinks about what more can be done to fuel and feel fully this gracious time here. And then, as I look up from my journal page, I witness a blue, gray, white belly sparrow fly immediate up, making a 45-degree angle from the top of the banister on Jenny's deck. Simultaneously, The leaf blower ceases, and at once I am at ease and peace. John Pivovarnik, is that you? It is. Oh, welcome to Troubadours and Rock on Tour. So nice to have you on the program.
3: Hey, I am uh, on my phone. Give me a minute to uh, get up on the computer so you have better audio.
2: Oh, cool. No problem. While you're doing that, I'll uh, share a little bio with the listeners, if you don't mind. No, that's fine. John Pivovarnik is a writer, actor, and theater director who has written over a dozen entries into The Complete Idiot's Guide and other computer books. He is co-author with David Sartor of Theatrical FX Makeup. Mr. Pivovarnik recently had his first novel published, this past July 3rd, as a matter of fact, titled Tales from the Back of a Bus, And it has received some rave reviews. John holds dueling BAs in English literature and philosophy from the University of Scranton. He loves Kurt Vonnegut. He hates ties. And if you like, you can get the latest news from John at johnpivovarnik.com. I should probably spell that. J-O-H-N P-I-V-O-V-A-R. N-I-C-K dot com. We are very happy to have you on the program, sir. Well, thanks.
3: I am uh, delighted to be here.
2: You know, what has led you to be a writer and theatrical guy, I guess, is a good place
3: to start. That's uh, that's a long time ago.
2: Yeah? (laughs) Is that a long time? You can't remember?
3: No, I can remember. I mean, I, I remember... Like any good uh, ham, I remember like my first time I set foot on stage and the line I had to say and all that. Yep, grade school, actually. And I was uh, playing the Monsignor. I don't know, some sort of tribute. I remember it.
2: And then you got the bug?
3: Well, yeah, the bug, the disease, the... uh, Creativity thing because you know creativity is fun.
2: Oh yeah, it, without it, I think we'd go mad.
3: Oh, definitely, and it, with it sometimes.
2: Yeah, it's a different kind of mad. At least uh, maybe you're, you feel like uh, you're being yourself uh, to certain to a certain extent when when it, the madness is on your own terms, you know.
3: <laughs> yes, at least you know how to deal with it.
2: And and you uh, you went from. From Saint Paul's grade school, you went uh, through high school and, and all of that. You were involved in in the arts, basically theatrical productions, uh, things of that nature.
3: I was, and uh, that's when I got started writing. Um, I took a it was a film class uh, with uh, Sister Pathune, I remember her name at Bishop Panin High School, and uh, she made us watch. Uh, Citizen Kane, all the classics. We had a great book. Um, she had us watch uh, Psycho. We took apart the shower scene. It was it was awesome. She was a great teacher, um, and that got me hooked on uh, storytelling of all sorts.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, we're making references uh, to places here in northeastern Pennsylvania and the city of Scranton in particular. We have listeners all across. The land. So, just so people know, uh, we're talking about uh, iconic and, uh, you know, schools and such in, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. John and I are both from this area. Um, I guess, uh, we, but we never really have uh, formally hung out. You know, we have mutual friends and such. I saw you one time put, uh, a couple of times actually, put yourself out there for uh, a story slam at our local fringe festival the Scranton fringe festival and you were fantastic.
3: Oh, thank you. That's uh, that's very nice of you to say.
2: Yeah, both I, times.
3: I like to let my fringe fly.
2: <laughs> and uh you, you speaking of fringe, I guess when you were a kid, when did you come across Kurt Vonnegut first? Cuz I know you're a huge fan.
3: I'm a huge fan. I have him tattooed on my left calf. That's big. I don't
2: mean, I don't mean your calf. I mean
3: well, both the, the calf is the calf is big from hauling my fat butt around and uh, the tattoo is big, and it was a big commitment. Um, yeah I got I got hooked on Mr. Vonnegut in high school. Um, I had to you know pick a book and I'm like, oh, slaughter sounds like fun, bloody, I don't know. Um, and it well, you know, it wasn't what I expected at all, and I had to write a paper and I was writing this paper that was, you'll pardon my, uh, French, a piece of, um, uh, because I hadn't finished reading the book and I wasn't, you know, it was high school, you know, but then I I started reading the book and I, it, the, the light switch flipped and I went, Oh my God. And right in the middle of the the paper, I didn't rewrite the paper. I just didn't about face. Like I meant to do that. And, um uh, when I got it. And it was like, it was such a, it was such a thrill to, to get it um, from such a, a, a cool writer as Vonnegut that I was, you know, I was hooked. And I, I went on a binge. I read everything he'd written and everything as it came out after that. Cause I, I am an old and he was still alive at the time.
2: Yeah. I mean, he lives pretty, pretty well into his eighties, didn't he?
3: He did. Yeah. Yeah. I ran across a quote of his today. that's like, uh, smoking cigarettes. I'm paraphrasing. Smoking cigarettes is the only honorable form of suicide.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's. I think one time he said he was going to sue Paul Mall or what have you because they put on their packaging that uh, you know may cause you know, death or what have you. And he smoked a couple packs a day and never did anything to him.
3: Right. Yeah
2: funny guy oh god yeah did did you when you were younger i know when you i'm certain when you uh, became an adult you uh, young adult even you got the messages he was putting out there when you were younger when you first came across him like me i mean i i can i can relate he i i also have uh great fondness for kurt vonnegut and when i first read him he just blew me away it was just like nobody else i've ever you know at that point had read
3: yeah um, well, I, I can tell you, I started off with a uh, slaughterhouse five and then, uh, one, I saw one of my, uh, hippie dippier teachers carrying breakfast to champions around. So I got that. So, I mean, I, I started off with like the big two and, uh, it was amazing. So I, uh, just went down that rabbit hole.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, did you? Uh, he, was pretty de- he was a pretty depressed guy from what I understand. I mean, maybe he had, he had to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome or what have you. I'm not sure which terminology is correct after uh, his experience in uh, World War II. But, you know, I guess the, the question I was getting at, did, did, what, what, what kind of statement do you think or statements do you think, observations do you think he was making through his writing and then we're going to get to your writing and see if there's any parallels.
3: Well, I think uh, when he got to be older, you know, the last, the last book he wrote before he died was called a man without a country. And it was a collection of essays. I'm sure you've read it. I did. Uh, um, Where he just, he, he, he finally took off the mask of, of couching things in pretty, terms and funny stories, and he just said what he thought, and it was amazing. And um, this was this was mostly about uh, the Bush administration at the time, uh, W, not senior. And um, I I would I would I would both love and hate to think of what he would have to say about the the current state of political affairs. But yeah, he he felt like he had been uh, disowned by the nation.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I got that sense too. And then you take on your own. First first time uh, novel, just this year, July 3rd, very patriotic point that it was published. Uh, you, you publish the uh, book titled Tales from the Back of the Bus. Can you tell us about that?
3: Well, yeah, published uh, July 3rd this year, but Um, that book started kicking around, uh, it's set in, in the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, and that's mostly because that's when a a big chunk of it was written. Um, because I, when I was in high school and I got the acting bug and the writing bug and, um, stuff, I told my parents, uh, I'm going to run away, uh, buy me a plane ticket. And they bought me a plane ticket, a one-way plane ticket to Los Angeles, and at 19, uh, whatever years old, I I moved out there with uh, my best friend from high school who had gone to UCLA. So he was out there and he, he looked for an apartment for us. And um, I moved out and things started to happen, as they do when you're 19 in a city like Los Angeles near a college like UCLA. Um, and I just started making notes. and. Um, Uh, The book is strangely autobiographical, I guess, and um, really, really um, hard for me to wrap my uh, head around because the story is uh, this guy named Jake uh, writes a book called Tales from the Back of a Bus that he gets published and it arrives at his apartment. And then, uh, as he looks at it and and starts reminiscing over the process, you know, it it the the book itself becomes the story you're reading, and so you read that story, which is um, very weird, very vonnegut, very heinlein, very twisty, and then um, that ends, and then you pick up back with the guy who wrote it, Jake, having to deal with the ramifications of having his first book come out and be kind of a hit. And he goes on a book tour and his first experience is a radio interview. (laughs) So, um, this is weird. Let's just say that. Um, because it's like, first it was art imitating life. Now it's life imitating art, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, um, the story started when I was in LA, I went out there, I was determined to write for television and movies. And a friend of mine called and said, hey, there's a, there's a job photocrop- photocopying scripts at the studio. This was before the days of you know computers and high-speed laser printers and blah, blah, blah. So I said, oh, I will do that. But it was Los Angeles and I was 19 and just out of high school. And uh, I didn't have a car, so uh, I had to ride the bus, naturally. And it was from, I lived in Westwood, and it was all the way across town through Hollywood over to, I think they call it Silver Lake now, but I'm not sure. I haven't been there in ages, but it's where uh, the old Warner Brothers studio used to be. And it was, uh, so I had to go in and go have the interview and all that. And that, that is the basis of the, the book within the book. Um, because uh, all kinds of crazy things happen on buses in los angeles uh, at the time one incident that factored in was uh my friend tom and i got stoned on hash brownies and got on the bus and rode cross town to hollywood to go see fantasia at the cinerama dome uh which is you know that big geodesic dome thing and uh while we were around the we didn't time it out right with the brownies kicked in while we were around the bus and um as we were sitting it literally in the back of that bus um these two women uh started having a fight about something and a knife was pulled and you know names were called and uh the one woman's uh weave was pulled out and the bus driver stopped the bus and Uh, made everybody get off and the woman is staring at me as I'm trying to get past her to get off of the bus. And it's because I'm, I'm there standing on her. weave. (laughs) it left an impression.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good story. Did it kill your bus or?
3: No, no. Um, After a minute, they got put off of the bus and uh, the cops were called and then we got back on. And so we all went on our merry way after. The particulars of that story didn't make it into into the book book, but um, there are there are certain uh, crazy elements of that trip.
2: You said it's autobiographical, so that that kind of tells us a bit about the intention, I suppose. But uh, were you also trying to craft some sort of uh, I don't know story that would share insight or or send out a a reflection or a message about the state of affairs for
3: humanity yeah. i i have never been the sort of person that says gosh darn it i'm going to write a book about the state of mankind um i i haven't i haven't been wanting to do that mostly because when i read books that that are very preachy like that they just annoy me um but i have i try to be honest in, in the telling of the story and about the time period and the time period as it turns out uh is very relevant to today because it was the end of the reagan era where another celebrity became president that had no right or reason to be there and shaped a, a lot of things for decades to come as the current state of affairs is the shaking up oh, uh, so,
2: so you don't like reagan or trump
3: I'm not, I'm not a fan. Um, well, you know, back in the day as 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 a gay man and Reagan, you know, ignoring the the growing AIDS crisis at the time, um, I had an ex who used to say, you know, I never got particularly uh, fired up about politics because it, it you know, the president never particularly affected me directly, but at that time the president did because he just he just messed with the anyone suffering with aids with the the gay community which wasn't even the lgbtq community at the time it was just gay at the time he picked up some more initials along the way um so yeah i mean I, that was that was you know definite feeling assaulted by the government at time
2: and so the book it it doesn't really try to or it does try to or does happen to make some statements about mankind
3: it does because um uh, the the main character uh jake is his book tour uh puts him in touch with some of his own demons that were um the inspiration for his book within the book and he has to uh Deal with those and hopefully come out the other side sane. In the in the first part of the book, that's uh, his his novel. Um, he's uh, bothered by this weird little man named kobold on the bus who feeds him these uh, strange kind of like Twilight Zone stories to read, which is why there's tales in the back on the back of the bus. Who turns out to be so much more and so much more threatening and without giving too much away. But in in the real world, when Jake is on his book tour, he starts getting notes from someone signing them COBOL. So uh, they're, they're either people who have read the book and are messing with his head or he's really going crazy. So it's it's one of those self-discovery sort of things where stuff gets unearthed and he remembers things from his own past that he really has to deal with
2: things you don't you don't want to reveal what things i mean what well
3: they're kind of they're kind of the the big beats of the of the story but yeah and uh, yeah i don't want to
2: give too much away i know (laughs) i i get it i get it uh and we're talking about again tales from the back of the bus john pivovarnik's first novel and uh we uh we're, we're gonna get into a little bit now we have a few minutes left some of your thoughts. You mentioned that you're a gay man, among other yes. things. Uh, some of your your thoughts on the current U.S. political societal situation. Uh,
3: well, it's it, as I said, it's the same as the the situation. Uh, but like, it's like the Reagan years festered into a boil. It's it's like there there's been more backward movement than forward movement. Uh, I, last New Year's, I I, I joked that. Uh, we're going to party like it's 1959 because it was, you know, everything is just that regressive. It's, it's awful. I, I completely empathize with that uh, older woman who shows up in the protest memes a lot. She looks like she's about 90 holding a sign that says, I, I can't believe I still have to protest this. Sh-.
2: You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. <laughs> yep yep so it's getting old
3: uh, yeah and so am i
2: and you know how are you dealing with it as a citizen of this country that you i'm sure hold in high regard but are I, probably disappointed about at the same time like if you're like me
3: i do hold it in high regard it's it's uh I I genuinely would like America to be great, and uh, I just don't see it happening. So, you know, I have, I'm probably on a list somewhere. I I, uh, fax and email and call my representatives an awful lot. Um, I have a note that I have to to call about the legislation to overturn the overturning of the uh, Internet freedom what is it i can't hear neutrality neutrality yeah. um because you know that's that vote is coming up soon like this week or next uh in a lame duck session which is crazy yeah you know i i'm the kind of person that has my uh congress people on speed dial <laughs>
2: and do you think that makes a difference
3: um i have to think it does because um like my one senator i always fire off faxes and emails and i use the resist bot which is a wonderful little app that helps you fire off all sorts of uh messages and um whatever i send to him saying, please do not, you know, the people you represent do not want you to vote for this or that or the other thing. And I always get back the loveliest emails saying, thank you for your message concerning blah, blah, blah. I have taken it all under consideration, and I'm going to do the exact opposite you asked me to do. So whatever I send him, he does the exact opposite.
2: You must be talking about Senator Toomey.
3: (laughs) Oh, I didn't say that. (laughs)
2: <laughs> i'm just guessing <laughs> there's only two of them i got a 50 50 chance
3: of being right a 50 shot um you know and um, uh, so yeah uh, i i take my uh right to communicate with my congressional representatives uh, to heart i let them know how i feel about all the issues i have uh marched <laughs> i burned out a couple pairs of shoes i have Splinters from signs. Well, that's an exaggeration. All timey signs gave you splinters. Now they have to make them out of cardboard tubes and stuff, so that you don't get them taken off you by the police. Yeah, right. So, so, yeah, I I do my bit,
2: and and it sounds to me like I mean, it makes a difference, perhaps in what happens in society, but it definitely makes a difference. Uh, I'm gathering for you as a person, feeling like you're you're trying to to, to respond as a, as an involved citizen, as an involved human being to what you see yeah. going on as an
3: adult person faced with the toddler in chief. You know, yeah, it's like mm, uh, I I earned this gray beard of mine. I would like to make uh, the you know I'll make air quotes wisdom whatever I have uh, garnered um, available. Oh, I just frankly it just pit me off but yeah
2: yeah they the the way things go down sometimes out of uh, Washington or you know for our state Harrisburg and and throughout this this uh, country of ours it does it does seem pointless and just mean not you know thoughtless I get yeah, you yeah mean is,
3: mean is a word mean is a word there's there's like it's uh, especially with our last governor who was very much of uh, 45's ilk. Um, Corbett. He pretty much, you know, he was selling off the state piecemeal. Um, and now the current administration in Washington is doing pretty much uh, the same thing, hiring, hiring exactly the exactly the wrong people to head, you know, scientific agencies.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be the game plan. Uh, um, so... What do we do? How about some – you have a gray beard. How about some words of inspiration and hope in the last minute or so for for those listening? Uh,
3: Well, I mean, we're on the cusp of December, and in January the new Congress uh, takes its seat. So I I have, like all my fingers and toes crossed, hoping that the the new House of Representatives is going to be able to – Get things back on course, or at least uh, be able to execute their checks and balances uh, duties as required. So that's that's my that's my glimmer of hope. Um, and the advice is: open your mouth. Don't be quiet. Um, anyone who's quiet in the face of any sort of abuse, whether it's uh, governmental, environmental, uh, just interpersonal. Anybody who does not open their mouths in this day and age is abetting the abuser. You, you, you have to speak up all the time.
2: Well put. John Pivovarnik, so nice to talk with you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Wish you the best of holidays. And, uh, yeah, let's see what happens with uh, the new year.
3: Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to type with my fingers crossed, but I, I'm managing
2: and uh, good luck with the book. And if someone wants to get a copy of it, uh, "Tales from the Back of the Bus," they could uh, they can find it on Amazon and all those places.
3: They can find it on Amazon, uh, Audible, iTunes. Um, even if you go into your local independent bookstore, it's available. Uh, they'll probably have to order it for you because uh, I know that they're they're not flying out of the warehouse. Yeah, it's it's generally available. Uh, and I think uh, my buddy in San Francisco uh, has it in his bookstore. I'd, it's That's that's what it's like, uh, vlogging a book on your own. It's like you get to know bookstores and their owners.
2: Yeah, I love bookstores. I, uh, I look forward to reading the book. And thanks again. Thanks again for being on the program. Uh,
3: maybe we'll be able to talk about it in person after you finish.
2: Oh, I would love it. I would love it. Go have a beer or something.
3: Sure. That'd be great. Cool. Take care. Thank you. Sure. Thank you.
4: So don't forget it It's just a silly face
5: Bowling Night. Every Thursday night, my mother went bowling. She belonged to a ladies' league, which was a member of the Women's International Bowling Congress, and her fellow bowlers were her friends and neighbors. She got dressed up, not all dolled up, as she would say, for church or wedding. Casual, but snazzy, and her hair was recently done by her hairdresser, Bob. Bob. She was perfumed with gina Tay, and she chewed a half-stick of Juicy Fruit. She would kiss me goodbye when I was little, six years old or so, and cross the street to meet her friend Peg. Peg later died of Hodgkin's disease, and my mother mourned her for the rest of her life. My mother was a widow. My father died from cancer at 42 when she was 44, leaving her with five children from ages 13 to 8 months. Back then, in our Irish neighborhood, in our depressed former coal town, widowhood could be a life sentence, and it was for my mother. A lifetime of being a third wheel, of resenting my Aunt Teresa's long marriage to my Uncle John, if not my Aunt Jules' rocky marriage to my Uncle Phil, a balding, mild-mannered, famous neighborhood bachelor, my aunt practically dragged down the aisle to escape her own longish period of spinsterhood. So, bowling night was, for my mother, social life. She had her church, of course. She was a member of our parish's altar and rosary society. Aside from an annual variety show, I'm not sure what the women in that group did, She liked many of the priests and had priests in her own family. My uncle was in the Oblates of St. Joseph order, and my cousin was a parochial school principal. But our parish mimicked the social order it was a part of. Large, well-off Irish families with important fathers counted more than large Irish families with widowed mothers. Jesus may have been all-in for widows, but pastors always kept the collection plate in mind and enjoyed good dinners with the muckety-mucks. And then there was the social life with our family. My mother's relationship with her sisters was always fraught. She got along well with her long-suffering brothers-in-law, however. One sister was usually fighting with another. Someone was always hanging up on someone else. Aunt Jewel might take time out from fighting with Uncle Phil to start a fight with Aunt Teresa, who would take time out from fighting with her sisters-in-law to start a fight with my mother, who might start a fight with Aunt Jewel. Everyone eventually made up. There would be a pause in the hostilities for a while, and then the madness would begin again. Bowling night was a relatively stress-free zone, however except for the occasional gutter ball or the cursed 7-10 split. My mother could have a beer and laugh and gossip with Peg and her other teammates, not caring too much about the outcome of the game. My mother had what we would now call self-esteem issues. She wasn't competitive, but I'm sure her game, like she thought her personality, Was never good enough. She always thought herself as socially awkward, a wallflower. Fortunately, she was self-aware and had a sense of humor. They were saving graces. Although I had siblings, I always considered myself an only child and envied those few odd friends who didn't have brothers or sisters. In our neighborhood, where Hibernian mothers regularly birthed five, six, seven, eight, red-headed, freckled offspring. Small families were pitied, and a woman with only one child was considered almost barren. Not quite the sad case of the old maid aunt, but nevertheless not doing her part for church, country, and ethnicity. I yearned for the single-child home, like my friend Jamie's, he received no end of attention and gifts not that i lacked either my sister had gone south and my brother had joined the army and until my other brother headed south as well and my other brother also joined the army i thought of our household as my mother and me and a couple of annoying boarders i happened to be related to on bowling night being the youngest and the least powerful I had to watch what my brothers wanted to watch on television. Captain Kirk seduce a green alien lass on Star Trek, or Joe Friday sardonically and moralistically book a dumb crook on Dragnet. At least until they took off with their friends, and I was left blissfully alone with my three channels and my snacks, a box of cheese nips or Bugles. Then I could luxuriate in This is Tom Jones, with Tom belting out his latest hits and Go-Go Girls shimmying and guest guest stars self-consciously and stiffly bantering. And then my mother was home, and she'd tell me how she bowled and perhaps open a quart of Jenny and have some of my cheese nips. We would settle down to watch the Dean Martin show. Dean might joke with Ken Lane, his accompanist, or break up in lame skits, with guest stars like the lovable drunk Foster Brooks, or the manic Dom Louise, or the deadpan George Goebel. Perhaps he would sing one of his standards, That's Amore, or Everybody Loves Somebody Sometime, or You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You. We both love Dean.
6: know your number, I used to love you like the world within. I used to love you like a child, the thing about people is they change when they walk away. About the things that no one knows I hate when people bring flowers trapped in glass Their final hour And life rolls It's all so fast Until it slows We cried that night Carver Realized we were letting go I used to love you Like the world would end used to love you like a child The thing about people is they change when they walk away
2: Cradle in the basement as a nineteen-year-old keeps cans of nine lives open all over on the floor and on the television. An old blanket is on the couch and covered with fur. Kilgore Trout may travel in time to visit and pet her old mane, for her name is Grail She will purr contentment just the same.
0: Christmas is children who just can't go to sleep Christmas is memories, the kind you always keep Deck the halls and give a cheer for All the things that Christmas is each year Christmas is carols to warm you in the snow Christmas is bedtime when no one wants to go Tinsel White So glad to know That Christmas is tonight Merry Christmas, baby Bedtime time when no one wants to go all the world is tinsel bright so glad to know that Christmas is tonight Christmas Merry Christmas when all your wishes come true Christmas, Merry Christmas.
2: I hope Santa sucks it to ya. Lou Rawls there. And there you have it. Episode 296 of Chubadors and Tours, With yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I have my annual cold to share with you over the airwaves. Hope you're feeling fine. And uh, I'd like to thank right now all those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost author, theater guy, and Kurt Vonnegut lover, among other things, John Pivavarnik. I'd like to thank our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavise, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, and these musical guests, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Brett Nuski, Courtney Barnett, 10CC, Mipso, Terrence Blanchard and Brantford Marsalis, too. And I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in every week and supporting Troubadours and Rock On Tours. It means a lot to us. Until next week, let's enjoy this one. Take care of yourself.